I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Jenny Rooney, editor of the CMO Network at Forbes. As part of her role there, she runs the CMO Summit, as well as a number of other initiatives like the Forbes CMO University Alumni Series, um, interviewing CEOs and CMOs for her ongoing Forbes CMO Interview Series. Today on the show, we talk a lot about the role of CMO, um, what's happening in marketing today, and the trends and challenges and opportunities that she sees. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jenny. Well, Jenny, would you mind introducing yourself? I'm Jenny Rooney. I'm the editor of the CMO Network at Forbes. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with your background and how did you find your way to running the CMO Network at Forbes? <laughs> I know it's, it's it's a unique job. I I, um, I never imagined that this would be obviously what I'd ultimately be doing back when I was studying English literature and creative writing in undergrad and then later on on to get my um, master's in magazine journalism but it's it's a fantastic job, and it's applying all those things that I learned um, when I got those those degrees. But uh, I started out not unlike a lot of folks in um, who are aspiring journalists back in the early '90s, 
And I thought I wanted to write for a consumer magazine, move to New York eventually and, and work for Condé Nast or, or, or something like that, or actually go to Emmaus, Pennsylvania and, and, and write for outside magazine or, or one of those really cool backpacker magazines, et cetera. But, um, but I just, you know, at the time I, I got a job, my first job out of grad school was, was working for a, a trade magazine, um, because quickly I realized that if you wanted to do the task, if you wanted, if you liked the idea of reporting and writing, the consumer books in, in New York city were, were very out of reach at that point. And obviously you, you needed to find opportunity and opportunity for me came in the form of writing for a trade magazine covering the long-term healthcare industry, uh, in Chicago. And I worked, um, there for a couple of years, uh, moved to another magazine covering the use of it in a healthcare space. And from that experience and writing about it, I actually, uh, was interviewed by Advertising Age in New York City. They were looking for an interactive reporter, and that's what they called it at the time, which was going to be a, a reporter who would cover this new and emerging kind of ad agency, which at the time we called interactive agencies um, and ad serving networks. And sort of this was the beginning of, of the time when um, we didn't even use the word digital necessarily to describe where advertising was going, but it was indeed the beginning of digital advertising. But of course, this was when there were banner ads and things like that. Long story short, Ad Age in 1999 was my first taste of covering the advertising, marketing, and brand industry as a reporter. I found it incredibly exciting. I, I, I was writing about dot-coms during the dot-com boom. I was going on TV shows, um, being interviewed about Super Bowl commercials, because at the time, all the Super Bowl commercials were, were, were the pets.coms of the world. And um, from that experience, I, I really stayed in this area of, of covering, you know, as a journalist, covering the marketing, advertising, and brand industry, went to a bunch of different other magazines, and soon found my niche to be focusing exclusively on executive level decision makers in marketing and advertising. So therefore, you know, chief marketing officers and um, CEOs at agencies. And that has become first at AdAge, because I went back to AdAge a second time uh, to be editor of something called Point, which at the time was a, a monthly supplement that was foreign about CMOs that was later folded into the main magazine as CMO strategy. And then I was asked to join Forbes. Um, and that was about eight years ago. And so I've been covering exclusively CMOs, I would say for the better part of a decade, if not more. So here I am at Forbes CMO network. And that's and that's what I do. I, 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 I talk to CMOs every day, all day. And it's, it's, I do it in so many different um, venues and contexts. So it's, it's an exciting area to cover. There's some pretty extraordinary people. Well, I, with covering the, the industry for so long, have you ever had a desire to work in it either on the agency side or the client side? Um, short answer is no. Um, <laughs> but the longer answer is the you more I much. get, <laughs> the, the, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's probably the case. No, I, I think I, I do find it super intriguing, uh, even as I find it super challenging, but I do know all the ins and outs and, and all the different angles of the industry and sort of all the component parts and I think at the end of the day, I, I, I love talking to the people who are leading it and who are creating that change. I just, uh, it'd be interesting for me to see if, if I had any aptitude at this point, I, I, um, 
jokingly, a lot of people who follow me in social media or, or things like that who really don't know me well, I think they initially think that I am, in fact, a CMO, which I always have a chuckle when I get some kind of out of nowhere emails about, you know, I want to help you as a CMO do this, that, and the other. And I have to explain, well, as a matter of fact, I'm just writing about them. But no, I think it's cool. I do think there's a huge opportunity right now for journalists in, in, in the marketing industry. I mean, brands need people who know how to write, right? People need, brands need storytellers. And so in fact, we are seeing many cases of, um, of brands, of companies hiring people who know how to write, how to, how to put words together, how to communicate. I mean, those skills are more important now than ever, arguably, even as we're living in this, this hyper-digital age. And so I, I suppose I could very well make a case for the fact that my, my skills might translate very well working on, on that side of, of things. But, uh, but for now, I'm very happy with, uh, with, with my perch and the way that I can kind of regard um, all the component parts, as I mentioned earlier. So oh, that's great. That's great. Well, you, yeah. you do cover, uh, I mean, you cover the industry, you cover all these executives. What do you feel like, how would you describe the state of marketing today? It's a challenged market, I think, in my opinion. But Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a constant state of flux. Um, and that's not just in the, the tenure of the CMOs in the seats. I mean, obviously, that's, that's sort of a, a fun stat that Spencer Stewart puts out um, every year. I think that number is right around 43 months right now. So certainly the role itself is, you know, it's, they say CMOs are on the hot seat. And I think that's because they are constantly trying to balance short-term wins against long-term, true long-term brand building. And there's so many arrows in the quiver right now for CMOs. There's so many options. You know, I think that that's the biggest challenge right now is figuring out what do you decide to use and what do you decide to eschew? Because a lot of it is, you know, we're also judging people based on uh, innovation and change and to do that as a CMO, I would imagine you feel sort of this pressure to to want to experiment with things and new technologies, et cetera. All that's fantastic. And that does that might garner some cool headlines. But at the end of the day, CMOs need to be driving business growth. They absolutely need to be not a cost center, not an extravagance. You know, marketing and advertising is not window dressing. It, it isn't sort of the side project that that companies do when, you know, when times are good. I mean, these are, these are, or when times are bad. I mean, this is a vital and critical role within organizations or should be. And I think we're seeing a lot of CMOs make it their charge to explain to everybody else in the C-suite why marketing is so necessary, why it's so vital and, and, and talk in a language that certainly CFOs can understand, CEOs can understand. So I think there's this combination of pr constantly proving yourself proving to the business that you're necessary. But then the flip side is, it is exciting. I mean, there's a lot going on. And so for all that challenge of, of new technology and new opportunity and pressures from procurement that never went away after the recession, by the way, at the same time, when you get it right, that's gold, right? That's exciting. And, and CMOs at the end of the day, they still are creative professionals. They still, you know, for all the talk about data and analytics and needing to understand, you know, the science behind marketing, which is very, very true. They love a brilliant creative idea. They love seeing um, the, a brand promise brought to life in words and pictures and sound and movement. 
and 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 experiences and all the other ways that that great brand advertising or marketing engagement comes to life. And I think that's what really still continues to motivate really great CMOs. Hmm. Well, I know we, you know, like you've said, we we actually both spend a lot of time talking to these folks. Um, and you've de- described some of the tensions in the role. Do you feel like the role is changing at all? Or has it remained consistent in your mind? Totally changing. Uh, well, I think it's both. You know, I think at the end of the day, nobody else owns the customer within organizations other than the chief, mar- you know, mm-hmm. except the chief marketing officer. Although from what I gather, um, CIOs are probably very quick to um, say that they own the relationship, you know, given given the uh, the fact that technology is so squarely a part of that relationship these days. But I think as far as understanding customers and consumers, understanding what drives them, their motivations, their passions, the CMO will, has been and will always be that executive in the C-suite who owns that. And I think that is what makes them so unique. So I don't think that's changed. And I think the ways of interacting with and understanding consumers and, and customers has changed. What has changed is what I what I touched on earlier, which is, is around this concept that a CMO necessarily needs to be driving not just brand, but business growth. And so therefore, there has been this... Um, this new focus on having to have conversations and, and being in boardrooms, you know, sitting at a boardroom table where you're actually explaining the relevance of marketing to any given organization and, and, and why the investments that are being made need to be made, et cetera, et cetera. So some of those things are new. We're seeing that in things, you could call it just semantics, but I think there's actually real truth behind it where we're seeing in some organizations um, like Coca-Cola, for example, you know, getting rid of the chief marketing officer title and, and instead calling it chief growth officer. You know, I think people are, you know, in other organizations have chief customer officer. I mean, I think obviously we're seeing through those new titles, some of that reflection of the changing nature of the role and, and how, um, you know, a lot of organizations are trying to get their hands around what the CMO needs to be. I think the challenge is when the CMO starts to be, you know, the Jack or Jane of all trades, and there's just so much that's thrown at them, culture, talent, product development, all these things are falling, falling on the desks of CMOs. And, um, and so, yeah, that's, that's where the change and challenge is, is coming in. Okay. Anybody, anybody stand out or impressing you these days that you've talked to or, or highlighted? I mean, there's, there's, there's so many, it's hard to pick just one. Um, you know, folks like Diego Scotti at Verizon or Deb Wall at Cadillac, um, Marcel Marcondes at Anheuser-Busch. These are people who have just an incredible uh, passion for their customer set are trying to maintain relevance of brands and evolve and indeed involve them for a next generation. And so folks like that, um, who are CMOs at legacy companies, and I'll call them legacy companies for lack of a better word. I mean, that that's a unique individual. And I think they're, they're incredibly inspiring in how they're, they're evolving dialogue or evolving conversation around those brands and in, in interaction with those brands. Flip side, um, you know, there, there are CMOs at, at younger and emerging companies that are so much fun to watch because they are you know, they, they, they are daring. They, they show a lot of, of new kinds of complexities in the way brands can come to life. For example, a Jill Kress at um, National Geographic Partners or Jeff Brooks at Casper, Kinjil Mather at um, Squarespace. I mean, these are, these are folks who are, they've, they've got brands that 
National Geographic, not a new brand, obviously a very iconic brand, but going through a huge change right now. Um, Squarespace, brand new, young brand, um, Casper, you know, a new lifestyle brand. These folks recognize sort of the opportunity they have. And I think the challenge for them is, you know, when you when you have such an incredible opportunity for, for growth and for, for really establishing these brands on a big stage, the ways in which you do that are, are where they're having to spend a lot of their time. So those are just some examples, and the list is endless of, of folks that I that I really admire and respect. I mean, people like Karen Walker at Cisco, Linda Boff at GE, um, Raja Rajamanar at, at Mastercard. So Vimla Gupta at Equinox. I mean, there, there's just so many so many cool people doing so many amazing things uh, to to make and keep brands as relevant as possible today among their customer set so no and i know we don't have enough time today to name them all i'm sure don't. <laughs> yeah but, i get in trouble if i didn't well, mention that <laughs> exactly 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 well um yeah. marketing talent you know kind of switching mm-hmm. gears a little bit it seems to be sure. have been an issue for it seems like a decade or more now um yeah. and i was at a this was probably last fall i was at a summit with a bunch of cmos around a round table and the question, I think I, I may have asked this question, but, you know, do you have anyone on your staff that could step into your role tomorrow? Zero hands went up. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, and then ensued a long conversation from there. But like, it just seems like this talent issue won't go away. And I don't see the industry doing anything about it. I don't know if you see anything that, that I'm not seeing. Well, as a matter of fact, so this is by far the single most important topic for me personally. I mean, I'm so passionate about this topic, and I I know for a fact that this is this is indeed a, a topic that is front and center among all CMOs right now. We literally Forbes just had an event last week uh, around our CMO Next list, which is a new list of 50 people who are redefining the CMO role, even as they're living it. And, and that's kind of something we can talk about in a minute. But it, every single time we gather CMOs together in conversation, it always comes down to the, to the talent issue. And in fact, that's what, what this, this, this discussion we had the other night ultimately came down to. It doesn't matter how old a company you are, how young, where you, where you have been in the journey, but talent is the single biggest thing that's keeping CMOs up at night. Uh, it's, the, it's the single biggest thing that they're spending their time on. And I would say somewhat reluctantly, because there's a million, as we just said before, there's a million things that they need to be focused on, but they are spending an incredible amount of time trying to figure out this talent challenge. So 
there's a couple things going on um, in the industry that, that I'm involved with and, and certainly aware of. Um, the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, um, formed their CMO Growth Council last year at Cannes, and that's when they kicked it off. And that was uh, a group formed to identify the, really like the four or five areas of, um, of growth opportunity for CMOs, the f- four or five areas where CMOs really need to meet sort of investing and almost codifying best practices so that they can all be successful in these areas and truly drive that business growth, as we discussed earlier. One of those areas, of course, is talent. And um, I'm actually part of that particular task force. And, and we just had a meeting in New York last, last week as well where uh, CMOs are getting together and, and, and talking about the issue, but also coming, trying to come up with solutions for it. ANA um, has a collaboration with the AEF. Actually, I think the AEF is, is part of the ANA now. That's the um, Advertising Educational Foundation. And that's sort of a, a network of, of schools uh, w- with which they have relationships so that they can kind of connect CMOs with those schools. I will also explain to you one thing that I started uh, six years ago, which I'm, I'm particularly proud of because to me, this program was formed as not the only, but one way to bridge the gap between marketing practice and marketing education. That gap has arguably always been there, but it's only getting more pronounced and more challenging as we move into, you know, sort of this new era of marketing. So I developed six years ago, it's called the, it's a mouthful, but the Forbes CMO University Alumni Series. And what that is, is I partner with business schools around the country to help them identify and bring back to campus, not just one or two, because we've always had alumni who, you know, one or two alumni who come back at a time and and give presentations on campus. And that's fantastic. I think that what this model was meant to be was to bring back a, a quote unquote critical mass of rock star marketing talent, all of whom came out of that given school. And the goal has always been to to keep it to the highest level, right? So I'm looking for CMOs or agency CEOs, all of whom came out of that given school, bring them back to campus. And we put on a day and a half long symposium. It's like a mini summit for the students, for the professors. And it's also beneficial for the returning alumni who, who, who come away with sort of this newfound network of, um, of people in the industry, you know, and they may not realize that all these, all those folks are, are also former alumni. And unless you had a bad, really bad experience in college, you mean you you have an affinity for your alma mater and for the people who also came out of that program. So it's been a really cool program. I've done it at Fuqua at Duke, Tuck at Dartmouth, Mendoza at Notre Dame, University of Texas at Austin, Ross at Michigan, Michigan State, I'm, uh, I've been talking to folks out in uh, California, Stanford and Haas. I'm going to do one at um, Clemson University for the first time. Uh, I've done a couple at University of South Carolina, uh, the Darla Moore School of Business there. And, um, in, and actually the original one that started all of this was at my alma mater, which was um, uh, Miami of Ohio. And their business school there is the Farmer School of Business. And we've been doing an event like this there for for all those six years, uh, and the other schools we've done, you know, I've, I've gone back and done them two, three, four times in a row because once the model, once the the model is, is sort of set, schools just love it and love to replicate it every year. And it's just been an incredible program and a really robust and inspiring way to get 10 to 15 world-class CMOs on one school stage 
and 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 basically have you know this wealth of of knowledge present to the students and the students have found it incredibly inspiring and i think there's been a real opportunity there for for schools to learn from it too because there's a receptivity among academics right now um, to really hear from those in practice so that they can really uh, revamp their curricula such that it it meets the demands of, uh, of today's marketplace. So anyway, those are just some examples of, of, of how I've personally been involved in this, in this topic of talent, because if we can sort of get these messages and this exposure to college students and even younger about how incredible a profession marketing can be and, and how an incredible career opportunity that can be, um, that's only going to help the industry, right? Cause we're creating that pipeline, and we're essentially, uh, to borrow a, a term from Greg Welch at Spencer Stewart, we're marketing marketing, right? We're, we're really finally getting young people um, to recognize that they don't have to go to Google or Facebook or, or even start their own companies, you know, with, with, with marketing skills. They can go work at some of these incredible companies that are building in-house agencies and creating, uh, you know, all kinds of experimentation around AI and, and have marketing be the place where they apply those skills. And that in turn is going to help these companies survive moving forward. So fun stuff. Well, well, I applaud your efforts because it's no easy task to, uh, to bridge the gap between practice and academic training um, and marketing. So thank you. Yeah. My, my pleasure. I love doing it. So, (laughs) well, well, you just hit on a couple of things. There's a lot going on in the solution provider ecosystem, if you will, with agencies, consultancies, tech companies, and clients, if you will, ice oscillating. I don't know what the right term is here, yeah. but going from in-housing to outsourcing um, to building new revenue generating units like Target just announced with Roundel. How do you... How do you make sense of the evolution and the changes that are going on? And do you see any equilibrium coming where there's a, a steady state for a period of time? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's, there's so many things in flux right now, right? Agencies are really in flux, kind of what what's their reason for being? I think they're struggling with that. You know, is it just creativity? Is it owning, you know, the, the data? Is it is it being the digital masterminds, you know, to, to create um, digital transformation for clients? Uh, you know, meanwhile, progressive companies want to f- feel like they should have some of those capabilities, especially sort of the long, low hanging fruit, if you will, the things that are sort of why outsource it when you can just do it yourself, um, especially f- and that's a cost efficiency issue right there. You know, I think they're trying to figure out well, what can we bring in house? You know, we, we've got people who are who have the aptitude. By the way, you know, we're living at a time when things are happening so quickly, you know, where it's basically on demand marketing all, all the time why add that extra layer of a, of a, of a, of an agency partner when we could just be doing this in house? Um, so I, you know, I think it very, it still varies across the board. Some agencies are quick to say, we love it when clients have in-house capabilities because they, we jive better that way. I mean, we can all get, we can create better, you know, better outputs, um, when there's that aptitude on the client side. So I, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it all fl- plays out. I don't think we're ever going to, I think eventually we're going to get to a place where it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not an either, or it's an, and, and, um, and, and clients are going to have, you know, just as they're breaking down silos and they just can't have, you know, the, the, um, 
you know, marketing isn't so siloed within organizations either, right? It's it's a it's it's something. It's a living, breathing component of of all companies that that every employee is arguably a marketer, you know, and owns the brand, you know, well, customers own the brand, but you know, is a is a custodian of the brand. I think likewise, these so-called agency capabilities, you're going to find them as much in-house as capabilities at clients. And, you know, and I think agencies at the end of the day, they do provide exposure to new creative thinking that, that, that companies can't by themselves always have full access to. So agencies really will provide that outlet for creative thinking and ideas. Cause those things are never going to go away, even as we move to a fully digital data based marketing world, uh, creativity is still sort of the holy grail for, for, for bringing brands to life and creating that purpose and that storytelling. So that's always going to be there. It's interesting to see the consultancies um, get into the space because I know they have, you know, they have very strong, a very strong rationale for why they are the best brand and business partners, uh, especially when, when going back to what I said about CMOs are being um, looked upon to drive not just brand, but business growth, consultancies have that history, right? I mean, that's what they're, you know, that's their, that's their, um, their foundation. So um, that's, you know, they have a very strong case to be made there. I think it's interesting when you see, what is it, Accenture buying Droga 5? I mean, forever we saw the the data data and digital capabilities being very strong there, but what they lacked was the, the creative prowess. And so we may see some of that going on through acquisition moving forward. But, you know, will there be an equilibrium? I, I, would, I would imagine that eventually, yes, but I think it will be. I don't think clients are ever going to fully give away all of their all the things that were once the province solely of agencies, I think we've passed that point. And companies are recognizing that a lot of those capabilities are things that they should and can have in-house um, and still work with agencies in a very productive way. Right. Well, do you see um, any top opportunities for either the brands themselves or the marketing leaders today? I know you mentioned CMO Next earlier, and I don't know exactly, you know, if, if you've had a meeting with those folks yet, um, but I'm curious what, what's on the horizon. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a, a couple different things. One of the things that we look at with our world's most influential CMOs list is we look at this concept of influence and being influential. And so this specifically for marketing leaders, we look at how they might be influential, but, you know, within their, certainly within their companies, right. And making brands sort of the focal point of, and, and sort of the province of everybody within an organization, not just the marketing organization. Um, and, you know, that's around CMOs having a seat at the table and, and really sort of making a marketing agenda uh, as prioritized as any other agenda within companies. The second bucket is, you know, CMOs having influence in the broader industry, you know, around things that matter to all marketers. Um, and then the third, the third bucket is around, um, cultural and societal issues, right? So, you know, diversity and inclusion, sustainability, some of these things that, that CMOs talk about and either tied to or separate from their companies. You know, some, some, some CMOs go out on the merits of their own brand um, identity as individuals and, and talk about um, some of these issues that they feel because they recognize the responsibility and the mantle that they wear as, as visible executives to, to push agendas, right. And to push, uh, for change. So I think 
I think there's some opportunities there. You know, for brands, I think I think there's going to be a real opportunity for 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 brands to be, uh, you know, to help people with, with utility. I mean, we've talked about that for for a number of years now, but. I think the brands that went out are those that are really going to actually, you know, enable something, right? I mean, they say there's some stat around apps that don't do anything just aren't used anymore. I mean, there has to be a commerce component. There has to be a um, brands help people do things, not just aspire to things. Um, And I'm not immediately coming up with a really good example there, but that's where brands are going to actually truly find, um, find value where consumers are going to truly find value for brands. Um, I think it's exciting around the fact that brands, there's going to be a whole lot more marketing is all about experience and, and not just experiential. I don't mean just activations, but just experience, like how, how they enhance life, you know, how, how brands actually serve a purpose, not just talk about a purpose, but actually serve a purpose. I mean, that's going to be really exciting to see too. So those are some of the opportunities, you know, uh, as far as, other opportunities for marketing leaders. I think we're seeing, you know, just in the in the in career tracks, it's still not many, but we are seeing a lot of CMOs start to move into that CEO role uh, because I think those skills that 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 CMOs are so known for and the ones who who do it well possess can be successful at uh, you know can help in the CEO role. So, for example, uh, a Brian Nickel who who was the CMO of. Taco Bell now he's the CEO of Chipotle or Jeff Jones who is the CMO of Target is now the CEO of H&R Block. It's going to be fun to watch that progression happen as well, uh, where we might start to see more and more uh, CMOs move into the uh, CEO role or, or president role, general management role. So that'll be fun to see. Gotcha. Well, what do you see? Do you see any threats to to CMOs at this point? Um, there's there's a lot of uh, bad things going on as well with all this change, like ad fraud and um, trust of their partners um, from time to time. Any threats that you see? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, I, um, sometimes I, I once about once a year, I go out to California and I meet with CMOs out there at some of the companies in the Valley. And, you know, one thing that, that hit me last year when I went out was this, this talk around security, data security, and how that hasn't historically been an area that CMOs have really had to certainly had no responsibility for and hadn't had to really worry about. I mean, that was something that the CTO or CL would, would deal with. But I think increasingly security is going to be something that CMOs are going to absolutely 100% need to be focused on and, and pay attention to and and have some say over because, I mean, that data breaches and all those things, that those are those are brand, you could, they spell brand catastrophe if, if, if they're that strong. Um, so that's one area, you know, it's interesting societal issues. I see, I see, you know, marketers are just going, it's, it's, it's debatable, but marketers are really, they're diving into taking a stand, you know, on societal issues. And I think they just feel like they want to, authenticity is what's key. So they'd rather be authentic and perhaps not supported by everybody in the population than be inauthentic just to win the favor of everybody. And so we're seeing more and more of that happen. You know, I think they want to put forth their purpose. And if that means alienating some people, I think they take that as, um, as, as that's a risk that they are now willing to take for the sake of that authentic 
articulation of, of what their brand is and what they stand for, knowing that there's going to be so many people who find value in that as well. You know what I mean? So it'll be interesting to see how that continues moving forward. But right now we're in a place where, where whether it's Gillette or Nike, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these brands and companies are saying, nope, this is what we stand for. And this is what we're going to go out there with. So, um, very interesting. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I know in Nike's example has played out really well. Yeah, um, absolutely. Didn't see, didn't see, didn't see that way in the first couple of days, but then it, the tide certainly shifted for them. So yeah, no, exactly. But, uh, well, so I love to get to know the folks behind the topics that we cover. And so I hope you will, um, <laughs> appease me and answer some personal, more personal questions. Sure. Um, so the one question I love asking is, has there been an experience in your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, this is a fun one. I like this one. It, it does apply to my career, but it was so impactful and it happened so when I was so young and I still, you know, it's those moments, you know, they're important because I, I still hold on to it to this day and, and the learning that I got from it. But uh, I was in grad school. I was writing my master's thesis on Vietnam War correspondent Michael Hare. Um, and he was many regarded him as being the absolute best reporter who covered Vietnam of anybody. He 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 wrote articles that he sent to Esquire magazine. Um, he went, he was on the front lines of uh, Vietnam and he would send back literal dispatches to to Esquire magazine in New York and Esquire would publish them. And, um, that those, those articles were later compiled into his book called dispatches. So it's still out there. You can go find it anywhere. But Michael Hare was at the time when I was in grad school, he was a recluse, right? He was living in upstate New York. He hadn't granted any interviews with any media outlet, uh, for 10 years. I think the last time he had granted an interview was to Time Magazine in like 1984. And, and this was 1994 when I was finishing my master's thesis. And I had done all this research on him and I had, um, I learned everything I needed to know about him. But the one thing I wanted to do was get an interview with the man. Like I wanted to get him on the phone and actually interview him. And I was what, how old was I? I mean, I was 23, uh, 24, and I thought, oh my God, who am I? You know, I'm a, I'm a master's student, at, you know, grad student at Ohio University. Never ever would this guy um, pay me two seconds, but I had to go for it, so I went for it. And this is obviously before internet. This is before email. This is before smartphones. Nothing, nothing, nothing. I had, I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a letter. I typed it up. I found somehow found his address through the library. And I sent him a letter and I said, I'd love to, you know, my name, here's my name. I'm working on my master's thesis. I would love to interview, get an interview with you so we could talk about the work that you produce. And so two weeks go by and I was at, at lunch and I come back to my dorm room and the phone on my wall with the curly cord rings and I pick it up and he said, Jennifer, he said, this is Michael Hare. And I, I mean, I, I can remember that moment, you know, um, I dropped whatever I was holding and I quickly found <laughs> a pen and a paper and a recorder. And I, and I sat down, and I said, Mr. Hare, thank you so much for calling me. And he said, well, you know, I, I, I know you want to interview me. And so I, I proceeded to ask him my questions. We completed the interview. And at the end I said, I just, I have to ask you, Mr. Hare, you know, why did you grant me the interview? 
And he said, I liked your letter. And it was just such a profound, simple and profound statement. And he just said, I just, I liked your letter. And it, it, it showed me the power of words and the power of, I didn't, the way I wrote it was so straightforward. It wasn't all flat, you know, it wasn't all flowery. It was just, here's me. You know, I didn't try to pretend I was somebody I, I wasn't. And I said, here's me. I want to interview you. And it was very, you know, it was, it was certainly very, um, uh, respectful, uh, but it was just plainly written and, and straightforward. And he said, I liked your letter. And I think it was just, it hit me where I felt anybody can have, has access, has, is empowered, can have engagement with people, can ask them questions, can have relationship, can get response if you're just true and authentic and straightforward. And I just, I came away from that moment thinking, wow, I was so grateful to him. You know, I was so grateful because it meant so much. Uh, but I loved his candor and, um, and it sort of, it stuck with me to this day. And so, um, I think, I think I, uh, I carry with me a little bit of Michael Hare and everything I do. So <laughs> what an amazing experience. Yeah, it was cool. That's awesome. It was cool. Well, if you were starting all over again, what advice would you give to your younger self? Probably just that, like, don't, don't hide behind anything you think you need to be or should be. And I know this is, this is a, this is a, what am I, a Gen Xer? You know, we're not cool anymore. We're the slacker generation. So there's no mystique around us. But, you know, I'm sure that millennials and, and Gen Z and everybody else, they, they're not, they don't worry about these things half as much. But I did, you know, I worried about how I showed up. I worried about uh, trying to figure out what I needed to know in, ahead of time. You know, when, when the reality is, I've, I've since figured out that if you're just honest with what you know and don't know, and, and literally the, you learn the most from people when you say, I don't uh, explain that to me. I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. Like, don't be afraid to feel ignorant or, you know, at a loss because everybody's still, everybody's trying to figure stuff out. So don't, don't worry so much. That's what I would have told myself. Don't hide behind what you think you need to be. Just be you ask the questions Tell them when you don't understand something and, uh, and, and people, people will be accessible if you're accessible. That's, that's probably just the best I can, how I can phrase it. So anyway, that's what I would tell my, tell little Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, uh, what keeps you going? What, what drives you now? My kids, my family, that's what it's all about. You know, yeah. nothing else matters. I, um, that's, they're everything. So, um, you know, everything I do is, is, is for them so I can be with them so I can, you know, create a good life for them and my husband. And it's just, it's just those simple, small things. Um, so yeah, that's it. Well, uh, last two questions for you more on the marketing sure. front, but, um, are there any brands, uh, companies, causes that you follow you think other people should take notice of? I know this is a difficult question for somebody that covers the industry, but I'm more interested in you personally. Well, um, I will say I'm a big, um, a big supporter of organ donation. Yeah. Uh, you know, my husband was very involved in, in that area, um, because of, of, um, a, a personal connection. Uh, I actually have a personal connection in, in that my father, um, was an, was an organ donor after he had passed. And, you know, I, I do think that that is a cause that uh, merits more attention. 
it's the gift of life. And, um, you know, it's as simple as indicating on your driver's license that you're an organ donor. But I think it's something that, you know, folks perhaps don't think about as much or forget. Uh, but it can it can be so incredibly transformative. And when you find those stories of, of people's lives that have been changed as a result of organ donation, it, it just, it's, it's, it's incredibly uh, inspiring. I actually was asked to moderate a panel discussion um, on, at, at the Can Lions um, main stage last year, and it was the CEO of Donate Life America. <laughs> they had just come out with um, world's, the, the world's biggest asshole campaign. And this is a campaign that came out um, to drive awareness around the cause of organ donation. And I was really pleased to be able to moderate that panel with Donate Life and their partner um, agency, because, you know, to me, there isn't any better, better cause. I mean, there's so many incredible causes out there. And I think social media has done so much to enable people to, to get involved, you know, either whether it's giving through Facebook's Donate donate now platforms or, or things like that. But that that's the one for me that I think hits me personally, but also is, is something that I think everybody should, should, should pay attention to. So that's the cause of, of brands, companies, and causes. I pick cause. So <laughs> that's the one that's I would true. highlight. Well, uh, what's last question? What do you feel like the future of marketing is going to look like? Oh gosh. I mean, <laughs> such a good question. You know, I, I, um, I, I think it gets back to that that concept of utility. I mean, there's always going to be a, a role for TV ads. Who doesn't like a really good TV ad, right? I mean, when a Geico commercial comes on, I laugh at it. I mean, there's there's that that that's just feel good. There's something there. You know, I don't think just video advertising is going to go away. I think marketing is going to be personalization is going to be key where in an environment where you feel like your data is 100% you know protected and you feel like you're not you know there's no risk uh, of any kind there to you personally you know i think the marketers who who are um, good at building a connected you know and a consistent experience across all touch points um, to borrow uh, a term that my my uh, my good friend and colleague, Catherine Hayes, who's the former executive director of the Wharton Future of Advertising program. And she wrote the book with um, Professor Jerry Wind, Beyond Advertising. They talk about this in that book, but, you know, marketing needs to be all those, all those points connected together in a, in a sort of a singular experience for, for people. Um, and that consistency is just going to be so incredibly key. And I think the marketers who get that right are going to win as a consumer. I'm sure you know this too, Alan. I mean, you, you got you to gotta walk into a store and have the same vibe, the same experience as you do when you're online or you're talking to the customer service wrapper, you know, or, you're, or, the, or the product or the package delivery. I mean, everything absolutely 100% needs to be personalized and consistent. I think those are the two words I'll leave with you for that. I, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.